Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And also, please leave comments. Today, we continue with our very popular series on sports vision, the science of helping athletes reach peak levels of performance through the training of visual skills. Today's guest, the director of the Florida Institute of Sports Vision at the Eye Center in Pembroke Pines, Florida, Dr. Amanda Nanasi. Dr. Nanasi is a team optometrist for the Miami Dolphins. Dr. Nanasi was the primary research investigator with the NSU baseball team titled, Can Vision Training Improve Baseball Players' Dynamic Visual Acuity and Batting Average? Her goal is to change the landscape of the sports medicine profession. Dr. Nanasi is determined to protect the sight of athletes, improve performance by making vision care an integral part of every sports medicine program either professional, college, high school, and youth. Amanda, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So how important is vision in sports? Uh, it is the most important thing in sports. And, and granted, I might be a little bit biased being an eye care provider, but vision is not only needed for peak performance, but also for safety. You can't hit a ball if you can't see a ball. And even we, all, we always talk about hand-eye coordination, but we flip it and say it, it's eye-hand because the eyes are leading everything that we do on the field. So what made you get involved in sports vision? So uh, that's a cool, cool question. I was always interested in medicine and I broke my arm riding horses. I used to do barrel racing when I was young and ended up coincidentally going to a doctor that worked with the Yankees to, to repair my broken arm. And I thought it was really great that he worked with athletes on a regular basis and he was helping people just like I wanted to do as a doctor. So I kind of started going down that field and started off really interested in the performance aspect of sports. And then later after I got my own concussion, kind of ventured off into that specialty a little bit more as well. So how did you get a concussion? <clears throat> a car accident. I wish it was a, a better story than that, but unfortunately so many of our patients get concussions, not from being on the field, but from doing everyday activities, not even just car accidents. I see student athletes that ended up with concussion because they you know, stood up and hit their head on a, a, a bunk bed or a really tall basketball player that hit his head on a door frame. And that's one of those things that's so important with public awareness that we talked about is that, you know, sometimes patients don't even know when they have concussions, let alone the fact that a doctor that takes care of vision can help them recover sooner. Well, how many people a year, kids, would you say get a concussion playing sports? 
Ooh, I wish I knew that number off the top of my head. I don't. I know that it is potentially underrepresented, even if you did see that number. It's better now than it used to be due to all of the public awareness and all of the required um, coaching that has to be done, not only with the, the actual coaches, but also with the people that work with teams. Not every high school team has an athletic trainer right now, which is something that is, um, it, it's sad, but it, it's true. So the more public awareness we have about something like this, the safer our kids will be. So are there things, you work with the Miami Dolphins, are there special helmets? Can we prevent concussion or at least lower the risk of it with our kids? I heard a doctor, it was actually Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald say something that I thought was just so smart. It's almost like we would be safer if we didn't have helmets at all, because the helmets almost give us that false sense of security because yes, they're protecting your structure, but everything still happens inside of it. And to answer your question, there are different types of helmets that are out there. Um, there are... Um, Helmets that came out, it's been a couple of years ago now, back in 2018, we were talking about them and they were actually backed by a lot of players and they had testing that was done as far as shock absorption inside of the helmet. But as far as what you get for your kids, I would really lean on your, your local doctors uh, and get specific information for your kids. A good fit on a helmet is almost just as important as having the best, most expensive helmet. I hear stories about people that I know that had helmets that were too small for them back when they played in college and they actually had to take padding out of the helmet to fit it on their head. And you have to imagine that when you're talking about youth sports and a lot of kids are just getting things that, you know, they go and get from other family members. We have to really make sure that you have what fits you the best. Now, I mean, there's more than one way of getting a concussion. You could get a direct hit or it could be rotational. If you could explain the different ways that people could get a concussion, especially when they're playing something like football or whatever sport. Absolutely. So what you have is the brain inside of the inside of your skull that's kind of floating there. And it's kind of a, a gelatinous sort of material. So when you have a direct blow, sometimes you can have bruising on that side of the, the brain where you actually sustain the injury, or sometimes it can be what we call a contra-coup injury where it actually slaps against the other side of the skull. So whiplash is something that can also cause a concussion. The definition of a concussion, I think it's something like a, a bump jolt or something like that to the body that causes this injury. It doesn't even have to be a head injury per se. And the thing that causes a lot of damage, especially long-term damage, when we're talking about things like CTE, that chronic traumatic brain injury, is that torsional force because we have all of those connections in our brain that have to stay connected. And when you have that rotation, that's where you have a lot of damage. And then uh, it's hard for the body to then come up and repair that. And a lot of different neurotransmitters are affected and chemicals are coming out because your body's trying to repair itself because of that, that tearing type shearing force. You bring up a good, uh, good question. What is the difference between CTE, TBI and concussion? Okay, that's a great one. <laughs> so TBI stands for traumatic brain injury. And there is a wide spectrum of mild traumatic brain injuries to severe. 
when we talk about concussions, we're talking about mild traumatic brain injuries. And that is a general way of thinking. You can think about it as a functional problem, but not a structural problem normally. It's not that you have um, you know, an MRI or some sort of special testing that you did that says, look, there's damage to this part of the brain. It's that everything for the most part looks normal unless you did special testing like a, a functional MRI, which most people won't have access to. Everything looks structurally normal, but it causes a functional problem. When we talk about CTE or that chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the problem with that is that it's small sub-concussive damage over time. Because like we said, each time you have that blow, you have changes to the brain. And over time, you start to have different structural changes because of different, um, I don't really want to get into like tau and things like that, all the details. You release different things in your brain each time there's an injury that over time cause these bigger problems. And that's what you hear about when you hear about, you know, NFL players way down the line that had these injuries. And that's the kind of thing that hasn't been known about for very long, if you really think about it. And it's not just football players, but any athlete that has lots of sub-concussive hits after time. How about boxers? Absolutely. That was the original uh, kind of way that we knew about, about all of the concussions, right? Is it was a, it was a boxing injury. And, um, you know, when you were playing football or you're playing some other sport, soccer, and you fell and hit your head, you know, it was just shake it off. And now luckily we know a little bit more about the long-term effects of that and, and the risk of second concussions if you're not treated appropriately for the first one. What's the age group where we really have to worry about concussions in young kids where it can really be significant as they get older, where they're at greater risk as they get older of depression or some other type of some other type of problem because they've had concussions as a child? Well, you worry about smaller kids having concussions more because they're basically like little bobbleheads, right? They don't have all of that that skeletal, musculoskeletal um, support system that they should. They look like big heads on little bodies, so they're more likely to get those injuries. So as soon as they're playing sports, that's when you need to know about concussions and worry about them. As far as when you start to have those other CTE-like symptoms, that's something that we're still learning more about because there's not really a, a general test to know if somebody actually has CTE unless it's post-mortem after they've already passed. That's where they're looking for all of those actual structural changes. Although they do suspect that people are having them at all different ages. And uh, I can't tell you the exact research, but I know that there is a link to the younger you start playing and the more, more hits you have, obviously it's going to increase the, the prevalence, the likelihood that you could sustain um, these injuries to get CTE, but they also have seen players um, with CTE that didn't play football for long, or I keep saying football and I shouldn't, right? Because it's any sport, it could happen. I see a lot of, you know, lacrosse injuries even, um, but it's just, everyone's different. And just because they only played a sport for a certain amount of time, doesn't mean that they didn't have other factors like the car accident. You don't know what other injuries they had to contribute to whatever those end findings are. It seems like in some of the research I've done, there's like 12-year-olds, under 12 seems to be the magic number. Uh, 
I, I think you're a parent, is that correct? That is correct. I, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. At what age would you allow your child to play tackle football? Oh, that's a tough one. And I, I don't even know if I have the answer to that yet. My, um, my son is only six. And at this age, it's not even an option yet, at least in our area. Um, it's only flag football until they get older. Um, I don't know. I, I'm still on the fence about it. And uh, there's part of me that says, you know, it, it's such a great, um, a great learning experience to be on a team. And there are a lot of great values that you can gain from that. But at, at what risk? Uh, I, I think that I would like the opportunity for him to play football, but as a parent, I, I don't know yet. We haven't really decided. So you mentioned what the, happens to the brain from concussion. So talk to us about autopsy studies. What does the brain look like from somebody who's been concussed or if had CTE compared to a brain that hasn't been concussed? Right. So there is, um, there's a great article that was seen on uh, in time magazine that really brought a lot of this to the the forefront of everybody's you know general everyday things that we think about as far as athletes and care and i would recommend that anyone check out that article um, they had uh, a number of brains that they studied um, at boston university and they analyzed the brain tissue and you would think a, a brain would normally be nice and and big and robust and what happens is over time they they start to to shrink and look a little bit more tough and there are structural tissue changes that are happening in the brain that make them appear that way uh, but it's a fascinating article that i would recommend anyone look up and do you see more beta amyloid or tau protein in these in these brains that have That's that have had chronic cte that's exactly what they found. Exactly, exactly. So tell me about some of the physical symptoms that non-eye symptoms to start off with that people get when they have a concussion. Good. So uh, a lot of them will have dizziness. Some of them might have nauseousness. We have that fog, which is really hard to explain, but it's just that, that sense, at least to me, I would say it's that just, you don't feel like yourself. You feel like you just kind of want to daze off into space. You have a hard time um, coming up with words quickly and you just want to kind of zone out. Um, some people have double vision. Um, a lot of people have light sensitivity, um, but it's just that overall, uh, a lot of people will talk about that vertigo type feeling, the dizziness, the just grossness. Number one is headache though. A lot of them will complain about headaches. How about sleep disorders? Sleep disorders are definitely prevalent. And for some people, they can't get enough sleep. Uh, and some people they're sleeping too much and sleep is really important when you're recovering from an injury because you need that time for your brain to recover. And that's one of the things that we ask our patients when they come in is, are you having trouble sleeping? And if they are, their regular doctor probably would have already put them on some sort of a melatonin supplement or something to help them to sleep better. How about like uh, migraines? How does migraines get, get mixed up within, with, within uh, tr uh, brain injuries? So uh, a true migraine is typically not something that you would have necessarily after a head injury. A lot of people are just predispositioned for migraines. And one of the things that we talk about is where is the headache? And often as people know, a migraine will be unilateral. Sometimes you'll have those, those visual symptoms that come before that aura, letting them know they're going to have a migraine. Uh, a lot of patients will come in and tell me in their history, I get migraines. 
and my next question is, well, you have you had a, your headaches evaluated by a doctor or a physician, and they just say, no, it's, it's a migraine, which to me is kind of a dangerous thing. Because if I have a patient that's having chronic headaches, it's something that will likely need to be evaluated. Obviously, we want to rule out any other pathologies, but we can't just just put it in the category of I get migraines, I'm fine. We need a further evaluation of that. Are migraines more common after head trauma? I would say headaches are more common. Are more uh, are more common, um, not necessarily migraines. Although some patients will have migraines after concussions. Now, fifty percent of the brain has to do with vision. So, what are some of the vision symptoms that we get after a concussion? Yeah, and that fifty percent number is something that I hear vary and sometimes we'll say even up to 90% of the brain is involved with vision, right? Um, but the, the blurry vision is something that a lot of patients will have. And a lot of times they won't have necessarily blur, but they'll just have an eye strain and fatigue and they won't be able to say why. Sometimes they'll say it's double vision. Sometimes they'll just say that they get headaches after a lot of heavy visual activities. And oftentimes it's near point issues where they're doing things up close because their convergent system and their focusing system isn't working the way it should. And another really common thing that we'll see is someone that's never needed glasses their whole life before. Um, as, as you know, uh, many patients are farsighted or hyperopic or have small amounts of astigmatism that don't really affect them. So they never wore correction. But then after a head injury, when that brain has only so much energy and has to decide where it's going to put that energy in this, you know, everything's on fire type situation, sometimes vision will not happen automatically like it once did. So even though they never needed glasses and their actual prescription hasn't changed because they had a head injury, now all of a sudden they're blurry and they're getting all of these, these symptoms that cause them discomfort. How about virgins problems after a uh, head trauma? Virgins is what we need in order to keep one picture, right? If our eyes aren't aligned together, they're each going to get something different. So the eyes have to do this constantly, not just converging to see up close, but also think about all of the near point tasks, especially we're doing now, right? We're doing a Zoom interview right now because we're living in a virtual world and their eyes also have to do this. So they have to do nice smooth eye movements. They have to do quick eye movements, saccades. And if that system is not working as well, that's where we have a lot of those symptoms that we talked about. And that's also part of the testing sometimes that could be done on the sideline is to see how those eyes are working together as a team after a potential injury. And that's why it's so important to have those baseline tests, right, on all of our athletes before they even have injuries to make sure that we know what their starting point is for function to make sure that they're safe and to know when they can go back to play again. Because if I have someone that has pre-existing eye muscle issues, it's going to potentially uh, change the way that we treat them after an injury. So you talked about, about whether somebody, about baseline tests, Talk about the King Devic test. How could that be used on the sidelines to tell whether or not somebody could go back into play? Because if they get one concussion, then they get another one, that could be a very high risk, even cause, even cause death. So if you could talk about that. Absolutely. King Devic is a test that basically just has the athlete reading numbers left to right, 
There's just in a, in a normal, like a, a line type segment. When you do the baseline for the test, you have a time of how long it takes you to read all of these numbers. So that tells us basically what kind of um, eye movements they had before anything ever happened and also um, how, how quickly they can actually get those, word, those numbers out quickly, right? They have to actually say them out loud. So then in a, a sideline situation, they potentially have an injury. So one of the tests they could do is to do that test again. And as far as the test goes, if they are at all slower than they were on their baseline, then we may wanna say that they have involvement of their saccadic eye movements and that could be a sign of a concussion. Uh, combined with um, BESS, which is a balance test and SCAT-5, which is another cognitive test that's done, it could be really accurate at telling us if that athlete has an injury. I'll tell you, one of the limiting factors of that is one, is it going to be done on a sideline? How realistic is that? If it is awesome. And you have to have a really good baseline. Think about an athlete on a sideline that wants to go back out and play and wants to read those numbers as fast as they possibly can because they see the stopwatch or they know there's a timer running on the tablet they're running the test on and they go really fast versus they're sitting in an exam room having their baseline test not all juiced up from being on the sideline they might not read as fast in their baseline as they could so it's a great test if we gather it the proper way are professional football teams using this test on the sidelines some are some aren't um, i will tell you that the nfl has very strict great guidelines now for all of their athletes on the sidelines and king david isn't right now one of the testing that has to be done by teams it's one that a lot of them may utilize after the fact because if we have a baseline they might want to compare but it's not necessarily something that they're all using on the sideline unless they're doing it electively as an extra test so what is the nfl most teams what are they using on the sidelines after a head injury some of those other tests that we just talked about, um, they'll check pupil assessment, they'll look at how the eyes are teaming, they'll do um, typically a, a set of matting questions, which are, you know, who was the last team to score and, you know, who are we playing, that kind of set to make sure that they're cognitively where they should be. Uh, but vision is obviously a part of that assessment if you even consider the fact that they are looking at eye movements and how the eyes are working together. So many times it could be a midbrain injury and that could affect the pupil. Uh, are, you, are you using any spe specific type of pupil tests like the uh, eye kinetics test? And have you been finding that to be uh, decreased with people with head injuries? We have not been using that. Uh, I am definitely interested in learning more about it. I think that it's great, especially since it's an objective test and it's not something that could be sandbagged in the beginning. And um, it could be something that potentially would work across the board for everyone to have the same type of test that could be done on the sideline. But you're absolutely correct. It's, it's um, if it could work in a team environment and the research is great enough, I think it would potentially be a go-to for teams for sure. Now let's talk about photophobia, the sensitivity to light, mm -hmm. uh, which is a common symptom for head trauma. Did you notice those special lenses, the FL, what is it, the FL41 lenses or any type of tinted lenses that help these people? 
sometimes. Uh, and that's something that we always test once we get to a certain point. In the beginning, photophobia is really common just because it's, it's basically light that's coming in and it's just not being processed the way it should be. So when light's coming in and it can't be grouped or identified, we kind of read it as blind, blinding glare. And that's why patients would even want just a regular sunglass in the beginning to help them. But then we, we want them to eventually go back to norm as much as they can. But for the patients that can't, there are filters that can help. And I'll tell you that there's not one filter that I've found that helps everyone across the board. But a lot of times what we'll do is have a lot of different types of tints for them to try and then just subjectively see what makes them feel more comfortable. Now, I'm always surprised when I watch a football game on television and a football player is wearing a tint, especially if they're at, it's at night or they're indoors. I would think that would take away with some of their contrast and they wouldn't see as well. And why are they wearing those tints? So for a player, at least in the NFL, to wear a tint advisor, it is like jumping through hoops of fire to get those approved. So they'll typically have a very specific documented reason that they need them. Sometimes it has to do with um, ocular pathology. Sometimes it could be due to migraines. And a lot of times they're either going to have to have all of their paperwork done by uh, an eye care provider or by a neurologist. And even though it might be, you know, nighttime, they're under a lot of lights that if you are prone to certain things, it can, it can provoke those symptoms and they might be better off, even if it is at the, the risk of mildly reducing contrast, like you said, obviously it's position specific. You wouldn't want a quarterback to have his contrast sensitivity affected. If someone's on the line, maybe it, it's not as important for them to have perfect contrast as long as they still have visual skills in general that are where they need to be and reduce, reducing those other symptoms that they're trying to prevent. Before we talk about saccades and the King Debick test, explain what a saccade is and how important is it to improve that for sports? It's a quick eye movement. And it's important for sports. Um, well, I'll tell you that we use it for the concussion testing because it's directly linked to um, processing and how well the brain is functioning. But it is important in general for sports as well as peripheral awareness because you need to be able to make really good judgments of where you are in space as well as where everyone else is in space around you. If I am playing uh, a sport and I know someone is a, about to come at me from one side and tackle me. If I see them coming, whether if it's because I see them in my periphery or because I make that quick saccade and realize that they're there, uh, it's the difference between me getting um, just regular tackled because I saw them and made the appropriate muscle contractions to protect myself or if I just got blindsided and that's kind of like what happens to kids when they get tackled too hard, right? Is because you have that, that all that shearing effect and more risk of injury than if you get hit in the proper way, which is crazy to say that, but you could get hit and, and be safer, or you could get blindsided and have a higher risk of injury, not just concussions, right? But high impact ACL, any type of injury potentially could be avoided with really great awareness systems. So we have trouble with accommodation, with focusing after concussions. We have trouble with eye movements. We have trouble with decays. And this is, I guess, because the brain, so much of the brain is involved in vision. Absolutely. 
And the way that I explain it to all of my patients is like this. I talked about energy. So you've got a, you've got a gas can for all of your energy that you're going to have. And when you have this injury, you've got some holes poked in your gas tank. And now all of a sudden things that uh, were happening automatically, like being able to, you know, process everything that's around you without feeling like you're looking at a Where's Waldo puzzle, right? Or the fact that you should be able to um, walk down a hallway without losing your balance if you turn a corner. All of those systems take energy. So if uh, I can find a way to either put some patches on the gas can, right? So maybe that, that visual system's not working as well as it was because they can't focus as well. So if I can give them a pair of, sometimes it's even over-the-counter readers or a small prescription correcting their astigmatism, that allows them to keep some of their energy. Or if I find a way to give them more gas in their can, which might be saying, you know what, when you're using your digital devices, you need to keep them at least this far away. So you're not overworking your convergence system. Um, or maybe you turn on your, your blue light filter on your device because we talked about your sleep patterns being messed up. So having that high energy blue light on at night messes up your circadian rhythm. So turn on your blue light filter. If I can find more ways to help them preserve their energy, then other systems are going to get better as well. And that's what we've seen in a lot of our patients that we've treated is sometimes they've gone months being symptomatic, not just visually, but overall, they can't go back to school, they can't go back to work. And all I give them is a pair of glasses, which any optometrist can do, right? Just to correct a, a small amount of prescription. And now all of a sudden they can retain that energy. Their visual system's not pulling all of that from the rest of their body and they get overall better, faster. Will you typically give it to them with a tint? Sometimes not always, most of the time not. Uh, I do like the blue light filter lenses um, when I'm dealing with concussion, just because most of them are bathed in fluorescent lights like we are every day. Um, and a lot of times I'll recommend like a transition lens that gets dark when they go outside. That way they don't have to juggle a second pair of sunglasses. So when someone has photophobia or sensitivity to light after a concussion, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it starts going away, what does that mean to you as the doctor? It means that their brain function is going closer to their norm. If they weren't always photophobic, photophobic or light sensitive before the concussion, that's our goal is to get them back to their baseline. Uh, it's just one small little piece of the puzzle that we can say, check, this is back to where it needs to be. And that's, we do symptom surveys, right? When we see someone for the first time after a head injury, they answer all this, do you have, do you have this symptom, one through five, this symptom, one through five, and just, we want that number to go back down to zero. And that's a big one for a lot of, a lot of patients. And how about after a concussion, should people stay away from digital devices? It's hard to, right? Um, we definitely recommend a few days of rest, but it's nothing like it used to be where we used to say, you know, people should cocoon and go hide in a dark room for several days. The reality is most people are going to have to get back to somewhat of the normal lifestyle that they were living before. Um, but I would say avoid it as much as possible and make sure that you're not um, holding it closer than you need to, because we haven't said it specifically, but talking about the version system, 
um, the near point of convergence for a lot of patients will be reduced after an injury. And um, that's not necessarily meaning that they have convergence insufficiency and their eye muscles don't work like they're supposed to. It's more of a spatial processing thing that they have after the injury. So holding devices farther away, what is that gonna do? It's gonna keep more gas in your tank because if you're holding things like this, your brain's spinning its wheels to process this. And it's again, going to slow down recovery. Have you noticed color vision problems after concussion? Not specifically. So what are some of the tests that are used to diagnose concussion? Does an MRI do anything? Does a CT scan do anything? How about blood tests, blood markers, looking for inflammatory markers? So that's a lot of the new research that's there, right? Or all those blood tests. And that would be amazing if we could do that. Um, it's not the standard of care yet. MRIs and CT scans are, are more of um, tests to uh, exclude that something else worse happened, right? We wanna make sure that we're dealing with a concussion and not a more advanced uh, brain injury. And that's always going to be decided by their, their general care provider, whether or not they get those tests. And how about a PET scan? It, it's the same thing, you know. Like it, a towel or something. So it's, it's not something that would be done anytime, um, I don't think soon for patients. In general, they're gonna go to their provider um, and that's going to be different depending on who it is. And that's one of the other things you asked about how common concussions are. So I can see any patients with concussions at my practice. It doesn't have to be an athlete. But the reason why I'm seeing more athletes is because they are in the hands of providers that understand what concussions are. And they're going to be more likely to identify the concussion and to know that there's a, a visual connection there where then I'll be able to see them, where that's one of the things that we're really, you know, banging the pavement, you know, uh, myself, Dr. Smithson, who I know you talked to at Sports Vision Pros is trying to make it uh, a known thing across the board. It's not just general, um, it's not just educating the general public, it's educating other providers uh, to know that this is something that they need to consider referrals for. And, you know, working with the AOA, a lot of times advocacy is one of the things that we're doing. And when the CDC guidelines came out several years ago, I think it was 2017 or 18 now, uh, for pediatric patients with concussion, these guidelines went out to all the pediatricians in the country. And it said, these are the things you need to look for if your kids have had injuries to see if they have a concussion. And vision was not mentioned on there at all, except for just sensitivity to light. So um, that's one of the things that we did. We wrote a letter and sent it in and said, everyone needs to know about this. And the more doctors know, likely the more patients will be diagnosed and then can get the proper treatment and not fall through the cracks. Um, sorry, I, I just thought of another story that I really wanna tell you. I just saw a patient last week um, and she came in as just a regular vision therapy evaluation. Um, Long story short, she'd been, been under the care of another uh, pediatric optometrist for, for like five years who had never diagnosed any binocular vision problems. She's a straight A student doing great. And then just this past year, she started having some visual issues where um, specifically it was taking her longer to take tests and she couldn't get through the tests like she wanted to. And the patient, the patient's um, teacher kind of gave her a hard time and was like, you know, you're not focusing, you need to finish your work. 
So the mom ended up taking her for a visual, a full visual evaluation at uh, actually Nova's College of Optometry and had a great assessment. And they found all of these binocular vision problems. She has a really reduced near point of convergence. So anytime she holds something, you know, closer than this, she's going double. She can't track well at all. Um, so she's having a really hard time reading, especially on a virtual environment where you can't use your finger as easily on a, on a computer screen. And now she has all these, these symptoms that are there and she's having a hard time getting accommodations at school because they're saying, you're a straight A student, you've never had any of these problems before. So she came and saw me and I ran a vision, a vision tracking program on her called Right Eye, which lets me just objectively you know, analyze her eye movements. And I said, just kind of on the side to the mom, you know, this looks kind of like a patient that has had a concussion. And she said she did have a concussion. She actually had a really bad head injury less than a year ago. She was hospitalized. She fell out of a tree. Mm. And, and I, I, all of a sudden, all the pieces of the puzzle started to come together. So now we're going to not only help treat her, but also get her those accommodations for school and say, yeah, look, she is a straight A student, but now she's struggling for these reasons. So now we can get her help. And, you know, it, it's just that mom had no idea, right, that, that the head injury could lead to these vision problems. And luckily, she was, uh, you know, a, a great parent that said, I'm going to seek her out help no matter what. But that's why. Yeah, right eye is a great test. We use it in our office. It's very, very good. Now, how about OCT? So um, I like to do OCTs on um, any, anybody that's had any type of head injury, right? Uh, we want to make sure that there's no structural damage, just like we also do dilated exams and everything. I will tell you that um, OCTs typically will look normal. And I, I haven't done research on this yet, but this is one of those things that it, it's on my list of things that I want to look at. I have had patients that I saw before concussions and after concussions that I've seen ganglion cell dropouts um, since the injury. And I can't really find a whole lot of documentation for you know that as of right now, but I think it's just maybe it's not something we were looking at. Same thing with uh, dark adaptation testing. We have an adapt DX. And um, when you run that test, um, for everyone that doesn't know, it's, it's typically looking for early signs of potential macular degeneration because it means that you're not adapting to light and dark the way that you should, um, which we know is an issue with concussions. We talked about light sensitivity several times, but on that test, you're only supposed to basically fail it if you have an issue with the, the processing integrity of, of your rods and cones and everything on top of it having to do with the macula. Mine was dramatically reduced after my concussion. And again, I had a before and after. So I ran it on a couple of my concussion patients, also similar results. I don't know if it's a testing bias because they don't do well in the testing condition, but not necessarily linked to what's happening in the macula, but, but maybe there is a link. So I think that there's a lot of room for research on what's happening to the macula, especially that ganglion cell layer, because it's an extension of our, our neurological system. A lot of people don't think about that, but it, but it is. 
we talked about OCT. Uh, just explain what OCT is and what it does. And, and there has been some research to show that there has been some decrease in the ganglion cell layer, nerve fiber layer with concussion patients. So I think that's a great point, but explain what it is and how sophisticated it is. So um, for our general public, it's basically like um, an MRI that we can do on the spot of our macula, which is our most important, one of the most important, I guess, parts of the inside of the eye, your central vision. And it allows us to actually visually see what's going on in those 10 layers of the retina. So we can see if there are separations between the layers, if there's any swelling, and then there are also some um, more sophisticated ways to analyze the tissue like we were just talking about where we look at specific layers and it compares to normative databases to let us know if it's not exactly doing as well and looking as healthy as we think it should. Talk about return to play after a concussion. Return to play is, um, is something that I usually have a part of, but I'm not the decision maker for return to play. I'm lucky enough that I work with several different neuropsychologists, um, different PsyDs that are uh, on concussion care teams, as well as MDs and BOs that head up concussion care teams. And honestly, um, if a player is... Um, injured enough that they're returned that they're pulled from play at all i think that that's the best place for them to go is into some sort of a concussion protocol that's monitored by a specific group that that is all that they do and it's going to be based on a number of factors many of which are going to be their their cognitive reactions compared to baselines impact testing uh, is something that most of our athletes are going through, and that was developed by um, the docs at UPMC. And that gives us a good baseline of a number of different cognitive skills, including some visual, visual memories, some different tasks. And they'll compare that to where they were, where they are now. And you, like you mentioned it, that, that second concussion can sometimes be so much more devastating than the first. And we deal with players that want to just go back and play. And we deal, deal with parents that just want their kids to go back to play because sometimes it's, it's scholarships that are on the line. It's education that's on the line. So while we want them to get back as soon as they possibly can, they have to make sure that they're safe enough to actually be put back into that return to play protocol. And that typically will also come after the return to learn protocol because a lot of times they're not back to school right away. We have to get them back to learning and then back to playing. So learning first. Exactly. You know, there's been some very high profile, famous football players like Junior Seau, Aaron Hernandez, who really suffered, you know, from terrible concussions, CTE. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, some of the high profile, famous people that have had concussions and what happened to them? Right. So, um, Junior Seau obviously was with the Dolphins for many years. So that one was hard for us, obviously, to hear about. But a lot of the, the original um, kind of spotlight went on members of the Green Bay Packers, right? That was kind of the original discovery for everyone. Um, uh, Mike Weber, I believe it's Mike Weber. Webster. Mike Webster. Webster. 
Webster. Mike Webster, yes. Right, that um, that was the one that kind of let us all know what was going on. And then that kind of led to everything else as far as the all the Boston University studies. And, you know, now all of the players want to donate their brains to science. And um, I think that it's, well, it's unfortunate that we have so many high profile people that have had this happen to them. It's one of the things that gets public attention. So it, it helps all of those other athletes that, that aren't in the spotlight get that care that they need so they don't have those same unfortunate things happen to them as all of those athletes that we grew to love watching play as we all grew up and then watch them slowly decline in, in front of us, right? There was a study done at the University of Cincinnati that showed that if you do vision training or eye exercises, you could decrease your risk of concussion. Explain why that would be and explain a little bit about that study. Yes. So I actually uh, had the opportunity to um, go to a lecture that Joe Clark did, who was uh, the doctor that kind of oversaw a lot of that study. It's it's extremely important for, for our profession, uh, for sports vision, that that study came out. And I'll tell you that, you know, that's the kind of thing that we will take to general physicians or coaches and athletic trainers that have not had any vision training as a part of their program and say, look, we have some data, we have some research that shows that it can help to have this training. We need more of those studies. We need a lot more of those studies because any study that, that deals with college athletes, people are going to be able to poke holes in them, right? Because they're going to say, yeah, but we had different coaches or we had all these different things happen. It wasn't just the vision training. But the more of those studies that we get, and even Cincinnati has come out with many more studies since that one, um, the more we start to have a really good picture that we can show everyone and say, look, it makes sense. It's just that we, we need that, that data behind it. And it all goes back to what we talked about. If you have a really good peripheral awareness system and visual reaction system, and even just visual acuity, everything that you need to take in information allows you to make the appropriate motor response to avoid injury. So it, it makes so much sense that if we have a really great visual system, everyone's gonna be safer on the field. And the things that they did in that study are things that, you know, every optometrist wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with doing. And again, I know that so many people watch your podcast series here that um, just want to know how to make their kids safer. And just going for a, a regular comprehensive eye exam with your eye care provider is the start to making sure that your athletes are safe. Because I'll tell you, I've seen concussion patients that probably wouldn't have had concussions if they would have just had a regular eye exam. Wide receivers that are 20-20, meaning they see perfect out of one eye and 20-70 out of the other eye. Never wore glasses because I didn't need them. I see fine out of this eye, but if I don't see someone coming from this side, I'm more likely to get a, a bad injury. So just making sure that you know they have the appropriate visual correction, whether it be glasses or contacts, is a great start. And if you want further vision training and your eye care provider doesn't do that, then you can seek out other sources, other providers that do that and can give you that specialized care. Sportsvisionpros.com is a great place to find doctors that do this. 
um, you can look through the AOA, the American Optometric Association has a sports, uh, sports vision um, specialty where you can seek out those doctors. Um, COVD is another one that you can look for. Nora is another one. Uh, doctors that do um, neuro rehabilitation will obviously be able to do good vision training. And beyond that, we're trying to reach all the athletic trainers. You know, we're speaking at the National Athletic Trainers Association. Um, I've spoken at several statewide um, athletic training CE opportunities for them because athletic trainers are learning more and hopefully are going to be able to start integrate, integrating vision training into your kid's regular everyday training. So you don't even have to pay extra money and go to you know, other specialized care, but it needs to be integrated into their regular athletic routine. And that's where we're really going to be able to affect more, more athletes. What percentage of professional sports teams, whether it's NFL, MLB, soccer, have special, have vision training or have optometrists that specializes in sports vision? Can't tell you the percentage, but I'll tell you that um, it's, it's diverse and it varies across the board. Uh, NFL uh, does have um, a very high likelihood that they're gonna have an eye care provider on their team, whether it's an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, you know, we all work together and um, sometimes can provide different types of um, care to our patient. But I, I think that's a great core start. MLS, right? So when I started to work with Inter Miami and they sent me over all of the paperwork um, and there was a list of all the different doctors that are on their staff, I expected to see ophthalmology on there because a lot of times, you know, they'll have ophthalmology kind of listed as the, the default rather than optometry only because they have the same type of degree as the other doctors that, that made the list. Um, but there wasn't eye care on there at all. Um, and I know that, um, you know, myself and two of the sports vision pros guys do work with our uh, MLS teams, but that's something that we hope to, um, to improve and get more docs on, on board there. Baseball teams, absolutely. They understand the importance of vision care because they're thinking about it from a performance aspect. Soccer needs it because of injury prevention as well as their goalies, right? It's really important for a keeper to have good visual skills. Football is kind of a mix of that, right? You need performance and you need safety. So those are numbers that we hope will grow over time. And how about hockey? Hockey is also a mixed bag. Um, you would think that there would be more, um, but a lot of times it's specialty care. You know, the, the goalies, coaches that they're working with those athletes will make sure that they get vision care. And a lot of teams um, will have uh, a team doctor that's, that's there. And again, I just, it, it's, it's going to vary whether or not they're just working on performance enhancement, or they're really taking advantage of the vision rehab portion of it after the injury to get them on the ice faster. So we established that after a concussion, uh, that you're going to have many people are going to have eye problems, probably close to 70% are going to have eye issues, whether it's saccades or pursuits, or virgins problems, or vision problems, there's gonna be problems. So let's talk about rehab. How can we help rehab the, these people? What is, we talked a lot about vision training, we didn't explain what it is. What is vision training? How can we use vision training to help our patients who have concussion? 
so that's hard for me to give you general general ideas across the board it's gonna it's gonna vary for every patient uh, a lot of times all i need to do is give someone a small amount of uh, prescription right like i said sometimes it's just plus power lenses Sometimes it might be a little bit of prism that I give them, which is something that just kind of, instead of the eyes having to do this all day, it helps to move the images to the eyes. Sometimes um, they don't need glasses if they don't have a focusing problem. Sometimes they just have spatial awareness problems. Uh, if I hold my finger right here in front of an athlete and I say, um, you know, close your eyes and touch my finger, which, you know, you, you you might say, oh, that sounds really hard anyway. But if you try it and you haven't had a concussion, you're probably pretty accurate at being able to find your finger. But if I do that for someone that's had a concussion and they put their hand over here and they're off, that those are the patients that are gonna have a different array of symptoms and, and come down my, uh, my hallway holding onto the wall or having balance issues. And a lot of times our diagnosis is having vestibular problems um, with balance, but not necessarily just eyes. So the different rehab that we do for our patients is very different and patient specific. And again, if I don't want to give an athlete, especially, um, extra stuff that they don't need to be doing because it's not going to actually benefit them, I'm going to tailor what they're going to do and say, okay, I only need you to do these exercises this many times a day versus other people that might need a lot more help. After the concussion, how soon can exercises be started? Different for every patient. Um, a lot of doctors are going to see uh, their patients right away. Uh, again, I go back to one of my mentors, Dr. Fitzgerald, who says she likes to see them when they still have dirt on their cleats. Um, I'm typically not seeing them that soon. My patients are usually being referred in from um, either concussion care specialists that I would see them like one to two weeks out, which I think is a, a pretty good time. Uh, sometimes we'll see them a little bit later if, they, if they're coming from just general practitioners that say, you know, this just isn't making sense, let's send them, or athletic trainers might send them a little bit sooner. You wanna let them have a little bit of time to, to try to get a, a little bit of their feet underneath them because if they're still really, really symptomatic, day day one, day two, um, I'm not going to be able to get as great information um, from them. And again, I don't want to give them things to do that might not be necessary if I just give them a couple more days to get better. So you have the inside track to some things that some of these high level teams are doing. So with people that have players that are having concussions, what kind of diet do they put these people on? Are they still allowed to have fried food and junk food and processed food or are they eating, do they put them on special food? So I will start off by saying that um, I, I definitely never want to cross into someone else's lane and, uh, and give them all of their dietary recommendations. But I will tell you that um, we're typically seeing that low carb diets um, are a little bit better just because they're uh, they're more of an anti-inflammatory type regimen so we'll see that often and then we'll we'll see a lot of supplements used sometimes um, omega-3s are really great uh, as well as we talked about um, melatonin for sleeping magnesium is really good for um, brain recovery 
and they'll usually be, be on a, a number of different supplements as well as tailoring their diet in a different way. Any other supplements that you could remember that you've seen as, as a fly on the wall? As a fly on the wall. Um, I'll tell you, there's, um, there's one called Calm that's just an over-the-counter magnesium that's like a gummy. It's a, a chewable that we use pretty often. So even, even the professional athletes have to use chewables, huh? Well, not all of them, but you never know. Sometimes. <laughs> so that's, that's, really, that's really exciting stuff. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.